Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. Last week, we talked about the beast that emerges from the sea, a leader that rises from the chaos and captivates people all over the world, so much so that they offer this leader their allegiance, trading liberty for a sense of security, sacrificing liberty upon the altar of normalcy. This leader, this Antichrist, will be Hitler 2.0. Remember, the spirit of the Antichrist has been present from the very beginning, mimicking and mocking the one true God, a demonic parody of the gospel. It should be shocking to realize how quickly a highly educated society can embrace unspeakable evil people willing to sell their souls in exchange for a respite from the chaos to maintain their standard of living. We tell ourselves that the people in power know more than we do, that they have good reasons for what they do. We justify our apathy by telling ourselves these lies. The truth is that we're terrified of upsetting the status quo, and so we stay silent in the face of evil in order to preserve a lifestyle that we have worked hard to create and to protect our resources. We are terrified of being singled out, of being different, and in the end, it's this selfishness that motivates our silence. Deep down, we know something isn't right, but we tune out the whisper of our conscience in order to avoid upheaval in order to avoid the terrifying truth. And so we build our reality on a deception. Our lives are carefully constructed upon half-truths, a convenient fantasy that justifies our apathy. This Antichrist, when he emerges, will be Hitler 2.0. The German culture was one of the most advanced societies in the world at that time. It is today, but it was at that time as well. World-class theologians in many seminaries, in order to pursue a doctorate, you have to know German because some of the best theological minds the church has ever produced were German. Some of the best composers, world-class music, incredibly advanced society, and yet they tolerated unspeakable evil. They con condoned horrific atrocities, and we deceive ourselves to think that we are different. We deceive ourselves to think that we're not just as susceptible to the spirit of the Antichrist that is always at work around us, seeking to undermine the work of the one true God, seeking to erode allegiance to the Lamb. The dragon is always wooing people to worship. One of the things that 2020 has taught me is how quickly radical change can be implemented, embraced, and enforced. With this in mind, 
Let's read Revelation 13. Revelation 13, verses 7 to 10. We, re we read the whole chapter last week, but I really feel led to crank down the microscope and to examine one part of this chapter, one passage, really one verse in particular. So let's read verses 7 to 10 together. The beast was, let's start in verse 5. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. Verse 7. And this is the verse I really want us to tune out the static and let the Spirit of God illuminate the Word of God and allow it to captivate and to shape our faith, our beliefs, our convictions. Verse 7, it was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may your Holy Spirit empower and illuminate your holy word to challenge and edify your people in Jesus' name. Amen. No Christian should ever be caught off guard at the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Being surprised at scripture coming to pass is a primary indicator of biblical illiteracy. The early Christians were seen as subversives and the end will be a return to the first, to first century Christianity. Listen to this. The early Christians were seen as subversive to the power of the state. And the end of days will be a return to first century Christianity, where the one world superpower will seek to exterminate the followers of the Lamb. This makes no sense. Think about it. What danger did these early Christian pose to the power of Rome? The, the power of the one world superpower and you had this group of followers of Jesus that were committed to peace and love and yet they were targeted by the state to be exterminated. This makes no sense, which means there is something more going on than meets the eye. Again, what threat would this tiny group of peaceful people be to the power of Rome? 
the dragon energizing the state to attack the lamb. This has always happened. It's happening right now. You see Christians in the Middle East that are being targeted. You see Christians in China that are, that are, that are being arrested and sent to re-education camps. It's happening right now. I was talking to a friend several years ago who lives in China, and they were telling me about these, that they, they didn't live far from one of these re-education camps and how there was this prevailing fear, this culture of fear where people would disappear, where soldiers would show up and people would disappear. And so the state, the, the, the Chinese communist government using the religion of nationalism to justify, to justify seeking to eliminate these groups that they see as subversive to their control, subversive to their grip on society. It will happen again in a more concentrated way in an ultimate and final expression of unprecedented hostility towards biblical Christianity. This is why eschatology matters. Eschatology is our belief about the end times. You have all of the ologies, right? Systematic theology that includes, you know, our our Christology, which I believe is the primary ology. <laughs> Christology, our belief about Jesus, all right, our um, our um, es, our uh, ecclesiology, our belief about the church, our pneumatology, our belief about the Holy Spirit, um, and and the list goes on. But eschatology is our belief about the end times, and we're so consumed with the with the present that we have neglected the future. And God has clearly communicated to us through his word. Jesus himself spent a significant part of his ministry teaching about the end of days, the end times. Jesus taught eschatology. The apostle Paul sent, spent a significant part of his ministry teaching about eschatology the end of days and of course the last book of the bible the book of revelation clearly communicates once we understand the interpretive key once we understand the genre of apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature because it doesn't clearly communicate i, I should go uh, i want to retract that uh, because it does communicate um, in, in a very vivid and graphic way, how things are going to unfold. So we should, Christians, because we've been told by God how things are going to happen, this should affect how we live today. So we live the present in light of the future. We prepare now for what God says will happen. It's not if this is going to happen, but it is going to happen. And so it's foolish for us. It's foolish for us to not prepare for the inevitable hostility 
towards biblical Christianity. And I emphasize the modifier there, biblical Christianity, because it, in, the, in the end times, it's not going to be the atheists that are going to be the perpetrators of the hostility. It's going to be those that have this, that have this cloak of Christianity. Later in the book of Revelation, we're going to learn about another individual that steps out onto the stage, that is the right-hand man, that is the, the right, that, that is one of the key leaders in the council of this one world um, per leader. And he's the false prophet. And he's the one that's, this person is the one that's going to mobilize religion to support the agenda of the Antichrist. This is why eschatology matters. It will determine our expectations and our response to the inevitable hostility to biblical Christianity, a reconstructed Rome seeking to exterminate Christianity. Our expectations should be shaped by our eschatology. We are failing future generations by not preparing them for the inevitable hostility that they will face as biblical Christians, as followers of the Lamb. Christians should be seen as subversives, undermining the authority of the state because of our, supersede, our superseding allegiance to another king. Our commitment to our king will be interpreted, should be interpreted as treason because of our lack of loyalty to the state, our lack of allegiance. We will be different. We will be set apart. We will be seen as aliens and strangers and foreigners. Real Christians will be perceived as a threat to society because the state creates control based upon dependence and conformity, which is the false religion of nationalism. And if you go back to Germany, you'll find that Hitler tapped into this nationalism, right? Where, and again, we're all susceptible to this. We're all incredibly susceptible to propaganda, the fake news that fuels the false religion of nationalism. Here's the deal, and I, I really want to. to to focus in on this one verse. It really popped off the page for me. You know those verses when you're reading the Bible and it's it's one of those emergency break moments, right? Where, you know, there's speed bumps. There's speed bumps in the Bible where you come across something and the Holy Spirit uh, just, you know, the Holy Spirit just nudges you when you read certain verses or certain words in the Bible, and you, you, you know, those are kind of uh, biblical speed bumps. But there's other moments where it's more of a, it's it's more of an emergency break where you're bebopping along, and then uh, you come to a screeching halt. And verse seven is one of those e-break moments for me that you you come to a screeching halt, and you're 
you're forced to confront the truth of Scripture in a way that creates disequilibrium, right? In a way that challenges our worldview in a way that is so countercultural that it's offensive, that we are offended by God's word, but it is the right kind of offense. Right? And so this is one of those verses for me, this beast, this lawless one, this antichrist, right? This leader that's going to emerge from the anarchy, that's going to arise from the chaos and the confusion. This leader that's going to be empowered by the dragon with supernatural abilities so that they captivate a global audience and really have a global congregation that swear their allegiance, that freely trade their liberty for a sense of security. This person was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. Listen now, this is clear that there's going to be a time of unprecedented hostility against biblical Christianity. And it's going to appear as if the dragon has won. It's going to appear as if that Christians have lost. Christians will be conquered. Those that refuse to conform will be rounded up and slaughtered. In verse 10, John quotes from Jeremiah chapter 15. And again, these Old Testament references are... Our, the, the book of Revelation is, is full of these references and allusions to the Old Testament. And so it should be in hyperlink, right? So you hyperlink over to these Old Testament passages and you catch the context, right? The prophet Jeremiah is preaching to God's people as they are on the threshold of being decimated by a pagan nation. And God is going to let it happen. And the whole chapter, Jeremiah chapter 15, it, it goes into graphic detail of how God's people are going to be defeated and destroyed by this pagan ruler, this pagan nation. Really, the whole book of Jeremiah, the whole book of Jeremiah, then it spills into the book of Lamentations. And it appears as if God's people have been defeated. But there's always more going on than meets the eye. There's more going on than what we can detect with our physical senses. And so it, God, God's word tells us that this is going to happen and the people that refuse to swear allegiance, and it's taking the mark of the beast. And and I don't believe I don't believe this is a physical mark. In the same way that earlier in the book of Revelation, the 
followers of the lamb were marked. And this wasn't a physical mark that set apart the followers of the lamb and protected them from a previous season of judgment. Uh, it was a it was a spiritual branding that indicated ownership. And I, I believe it's the same thing here with, with the mark of the lamb. I mean, with the mark of the beast, I'm sorry. The mark of the beast is not, I, and one commentator said, the mark of the beast is not a tattoo on the forehead or the right hand, nor a microchip embedded under the skin. It's the character of the beast embedded under the skin. It's the character of the beast implanted in the soul, just as the presence of the Holy Spirit makes himself known through Jesus' disciples, so the presence of the beast makes himself known through its disciples. And so there are fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and there are fruits of the unholy spirit. And so if it'd be an interest it'd be an interesting study to see the fruit of the holy spirit and then the fruit of the unholy spirit these qualities that should characterize the followers of the lamb and these other qualities that characterize the followers of the dragon but it's clear that God is going to allow God is going to allow, because it says here that the beast was given multiple times that word given. The beast was given in the God in the same way that God allowed Babylon and that Nebuchadnezzar was given authority to conquer God's people, to decimate the people of God. And so there's this underlying conviction of the sovereignty of God that fuels our perseverance through the inevitable hostility of maintaining our biblical conviction in a godless society, that we are going to be more and more set apart and singled out simply by being Christian, simply by maintaining orthodox biblical convictions. This scenario that I'm describing is not hypothetical to many contemporary Christians, but they're experiencing hostility right now. We have the tendency, all of us do, to have an ethnocentric theology. We read the Bible through the lens of our culture. We read the Bible through the lens of our ethnicity. Um, But we need to have as much as possible we need to own that bias and ask God to shape our convictions purely from his word, not from our culture or even from our religious traditions. Sometimes, many times, believing the Bible means allowing scripture to deconstruct religious traditions that were downloaded in our in our in our faith in our life that it's reverse discipleship where it's the spirit of god taking the chisel of the word of god 
and shaping us. And some of that shaping means unlearning some things, means relearning some things. And usually it's a chisel. Sometimes it's a scalpel, but sometimes, sometimes it's a hatchet. Again, this scenario is not hypothetical to many, many Christians, to millions and millions of Christians in the world right now. They're experiencing hostility right now. So they read the book of Revelation. They hear a story. They hear a sermon on persecution and they're all nodding their heads because it's relevant for them. But what I want to tell the Christians in North America, in 21st century North America, is that it will be relevant for all of us. It will at some point be relevant for every Christian, especially as we approach the end of days. Remember, the book of Revelation was originally written to seven actual churches. John, the apostle John, was a pastor. He wasn't primarily a prophet. His primary calling was to pastor churches. Jesus had already rebuked most of these churches through the Apostle John earlier in the book of Revelation because they had compromised their convictions to accommodate their culture. Listen closely to what one commentator says. The one common denominator to all of these churches that were rebuked by Jesus is their theology of compromise. Listen to this. They encourage a compromise arrangement with the culture's idolatrous institutions. They argued that it's possible to follow Jesus Christ and live by the values and systems of this idolatrous society. Besides, they say, look at the economic prosperity the system has provided you. Surely you owe it some level of worship. Listen, this is incredibly relevant. This compromised arrangement with our culture's idolatrous institutions. It happens slowly, right? Where it's called syncretism. And this has been the challenge with God's people from the very beginning. The primary challenge was letting the surrounding nations, the the values and the, the worldview that would seep into God's people over time. And they would, they would pull parts of the host culture into the church. That's, that, that's what's always in God. God would send his prophets to rebuke them for this compromise, this, this theology of compromise. And he rebuked the churches in the book of Revelation for this. Jesus was incredibly clear. There's no fine print in the Gospels. Jesus said to his followers, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross. And in our time, in 21st century North America, the cross is a fashion accessory. But when Jesus originally said that phrase, you must take up your cross, uh, the cross 
was a thing of horror. It was the substance of nightmares. It was, it was horrific. And for Jesus to say this, this was the altar call of the Son of God. This was the cost of discipleship from Christ himself. Comfortable Christianity is an oxymoron. Comfort in Christianity should be mutually exclusive because it is never comfortable to carry a cross. And we have to be very careful when we upgrade the gospel in order to accommodate our culture. We have to be very careful when we edit Christianity to make it less offensive and more appealing. Maybe we can, we minimize the cost to maximize the response, but in doing so, we drain the cross of its power to save. There is no Christianity without a cross. You take out the cross, it's no longer Christianity. And it's not a gold-plated cross. It is a blood-soaked cross. The cross always requires sacrifice. The ultimate sacrifice of Christ for our salvation, but then we are called by Christ to take up our cross for our sanctification, for our growth in godliness. Jesus was incredibly clear. They will treat you the way they treated me. Paul was incredibly clear. There's no fine print in the epistles. Everyone, he says, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. The early church clearly understood and joyfully embraced the, inevit the inevitability of suffering for their faith. Here's what I want us to see today as we study this passage in the book of Revelation is that there are no exceptions. There is no North American exception to this biblical truth. We must prepare ourselves and our children for what the Bible says will happen. And listen, we don't prepare by stockpiling ammunition. We don't prepare. We don't prepare by putting bars on our windows. We don't prepare by stockpiling ammunition. We prepare by stockpiling hope. We prepare by fortifying our faith so that it will withstand the coming storms. We prepare by preparing to pay the ultimate price if necessary rather than compromise our convictions. We prepare by cultivating deep community where we have this sense of solidarity with other aliens and strangers, a colony of heaven on earth. That is what the church should be. We prepare by cultivating a longing for heaven. We prepare by holding every earthly thing loosely, by holding our lives loosely. Again, notice what Revelation doesn't say. It doesn't say organize a Christian militia in response to this hostility. It doesn't say to find a weapon and defend our rights. The very phrase Christian militia 
is a perversion of the gospel of peace. Nowhere in the New Testament are we told to fight violence with violence. We are told how to suffer well. We are told that there, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the only beatitude, it's the only beatitude with an encore. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who are mistreated because of their faith in me. That there is certain, there is a depth of joy that can only be unlocked in the midst of persecution where we experience the gospel in ways that are impossible outside of persecution. Nowhere in Revelation, nowhere in the New Testament are we told to fight hostility with hostility. We are told by Jesus to love our enemies. And Jesus practiced what he preached. And as he hung on the cross, the only innocent person that has ever lived, as after he had been falsely accused, betrayed by one of his closest friends, abandoned, by those he had invested years of his life in. And he's hanging on the cross, struggling to breathe. And he's being mocked by the other people being crucified beside him. One of the prisoners is mocking him. And then the religious leaders, the ones ultimately responsible for his agony that were mocking him. And he sees his mother weeping. How did he respond to such unimaginable hostility, to such demonic hatred? He looked at those that held the hammer that drove the spikes through his wrist and ankle. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the same Jesus that lives in every Christian. And he responds in the same way to the same hostility. And the more that we are like him, the more we will be treated as he was because the spirit of the Antichrist, the same spirit that energized the religious and political powers of his day. The same spirit, the unholy spirit, is energizing the, power, the people and the powers around us today. So the gospel has no fine print. The epistles have no fine print. And I want to conclude one verse one verse that has stuck with me 
from the earliest stages of my faith for well over 20 years now. This verse, that's like a splinter lodged in my soul, always there. And it might seem crazy and it might seem morbid, but I think sometimes that if I know I'm about to die, if I know that I only have moments to live, this would be the verse that I would speak with my last breath. It's Philippians 1.21. And I want us to wrestle with this truth because the Apostle Paul said it and then he lived it. I want us to fully submit to this truth. The Apostle Paul said to the church in Philippi, he's discipling them, right? He's preparing them for the unavoidable opposition to the Holy Spirit, to biblical Christianity. And he says this, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. To have this consuming passion for Jesus. And it's this superseding it's this superseding affection, this all-consuming devotion that causes us, listen, right? As, as we're full of the Spirit, as, as the Spirit fills our life, it does this, right? The things that we're clinging to, we're clinging to our health, we're clinging to our resources, we're clinging to our careers, we're clinging to our appearance, we're clinging to our relationships. And, and these things aren't necessarily bad. They're not intrinsically sinful. But we cling to them with white-knuckle grip. We cling to the hope of a spouse. We cling to a marriage. We cling to a family. We cling to children. We cling to our, our, our political platforms. And so we end up like this. With closed fist, we walk through life clinging to temporary things. And as the Spirit fills our life, as the Spirit fills and overflows, this is what happens. We let go. We let go. And the only thing we cling to is the cross of Christ. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. Jesus said the one commandment is to love God with all that we are. To this all-consuming affection, this superseding devotion that everything else in life is secondary to our faith. Our faith in God is not in the category of a hobby, right? Where we go to church every now and again, we give money every now and again. You know, we we show up at Christmas and Easter, right? We pray the prayer, we get baptized. Our faith, real faith, is always the main thing. And 
to live as Christ. And the, that is the prerequisite to the second part of this verse, to die as gain. The only way that we could view death as gain is if we viewed life as Christ. You get that? You can't skip to the end. The prerequisite truth is to have this consuming this consuming devotion to Jesus and then a a byproduct of that is how we view death to die is gain how many of us could honestly say right now to die is gain if given the choice right now if god were to tell me you could live the next 30 40 years in this world, or you could come and be with me right now, what would you choose? And there's all kinds of ways for us to justify. There's all kinds of ways for us to justify our, <laughs> our clenched fist. So many Christians, right, that walk through life like this, and God is calling us to let go. The early church, right? they had their possessions taken from them. They had their family and friends that were mistreated and abused. Right? And some even murdered. And yet they refused. They would rather die than deny Jesus. This isn't morbid. On the contrary, it's the opposite of morbid. What is the opposite of morbid? Joyful? The truth is, and here's, here's the uncomfortable truth, is that we're scared to death of dying. There's a poem by Dylan Thomas called Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. And the first line goes like this. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Kingdom people never rage against the dying of the light because it's only in death that we experience the fullness of life as our faith becomes sight. Christians should shrug their shoulders at death because that is what the Bible, the we know, right? We know God has told us what's on the other side. And Revelation chapter four and five describes the atmosphere of heaven, the throne room. It is unimaginably glorious and beautiful. Absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. We don't rage, we rejoice. I know what some of you were thinking. This isn't natural, right? This this sounds, this just sounds wrong. And it should. Biblical truth is abrasive to the flesh. The flesh never willingly lays itself upon the altar. This isn't natural. It's supernatural. May we all come to the point where we can honestly say, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. May we honestly, in our hearts, believe that. 
It's only when we reach this point that we can let go, that a diagnosis, right? We're not clinging to this life as if our hope somehow were found in the things that we're gripping, as if our peace somehow came from this illusion of control to let go and to walk through life with open hands and extended arms. It's only when we reach this point where we can honestly say to die is gain that we can truly experience the depths of joy that are possible through faith in Christ. It's only when we come to this point where we let go that we can have a fearless faith, a radiant faith, a reckless faith for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Revelation. And help us, Lord, God, peel our fingers off of our idols. Lord, this theology of compromise that many of us have been discipled with and our idols aren't intrinsically evil and that what, that's what makes them so dangerous. And so, God, I pray that you'll do a deep work in all of our hearts so that someday we'll be able to honestly say to live is Christ. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Help us, Lord, to live as if the Bible were true and to prepare accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're looking for ways to connect, find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just check out the show notes for details. Thank you for tuning in. I hope and pray that this has been a blessing in your life. And I hope that you'll continue the conversation with God by opening his word for yourself. Love y'all.